The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome Ms. Jocelyn C. Zuckerman. She is the former deputy editor of Gourmet Magazine, articles editor of On Earth, and executive editor of Modern Farmer. An alumna of Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism and a former fellow with the Washington, D.C.-based Alicia Patterson Foundation, she has written for Fast Company, The American Prospect, Vogue, and many other publications. She is also a James Beard Award winner for her feature writing, and we are going to be talking about her first book titled Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thanks so much, Melinda. Great to be here. You know, I kind of read books in an odd way. I start at the end. I like to look at acknowledgments. I like to look at who books are dedicated to. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I thought of, actually, when I read a little bit about you and your work is, my gosh, you're a mother of two girls, and you are going into some very dangerous places in the world. And as a mother myself, I thought, that must have been really difficult. That's a brave thing to do. And then in your acknowledgments, you recognize your mother, an incredible 82-year-old, for understanding that motherhood doesn't cancel out ambitions. And she reminded you of the example you were setting for your girls. So I want to start by asking you about the risks that you took in putting together a book about palm oil. First of all, that is such a nice place to start. Nobody else that I've spoken with has mentioned that. And yeah, my mom is amazing. She raised five kids born in six years, <laughs> I'll mention, with a largely absentee father. And yeah, she never guilt-tripped me. She always drove here from New Jersey anytime I took these trips. And basically she said, don't worry about anything. And this is great that you're doing this to show your your girls what a mom can do. So anyway, I appreciate that. So the risks, yeah. I tried to be careful. It definitely, as you know, I think I was much more fearless back when I was a, a single person or at least a, a childless person. You know, you just, you think it's just about me. And I guess you're a little more, feel there's some sort of immunity when you're younger too. But definitely when kids come into the picture, I just tried to make sure that I hooked up with the people on the ground before I went there. You know, I sort of developed networks through phone calls and Skype and things and just tried to make sure that I knew what sort of situations I was going to be in and how to get out of them if something got a little tricky. It's true, I write in the book, when I was in Honduras and Guatemala, I was scared. As you know, there's a lot of drug trade happening down there and a lot of guns around. And so I tried to be as careful as I could, and I don't know where the line of paranoia stopped and the line of true danger began, but I definitely did feel a couple times, like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> Anything could happen right now. As I said, I tried to work with local people on the ground that I could trust 
and to meet people in safe places. Because the other thing you don't want to do is endanger the folks on the ground that you're meeting with. There was one point, it was before this palm oil story, but I was reporting from Zimbabwe years ago, and I remember speaking with a woman at an NGO, and she said, you know, you journalists come in here, and you meet with all these people on the ground, and then you get caught at the airport, and like they take your notebooks, and you've got a list of all the people you've spoken to. You know, they might keep you in jail for a couple days, then you get on a, a plane and you fly back to New York, and then they go kill, you know, all the people that they found in your notebook. So part of what I was concerned with was making sure that I wasn't revealing anybody on the ground who could get in trouble later on. Yeah, that's so interesting. And we should let our listeners know that you have truly traveled the globe to tell this story. And most of the palm-producing regions are around the equator. So you've been to Indonesia, Malaysia, Liberia, Brazil, Honduras, and Guatemala, as you mentioned, India. And you tell the story, you tell so many stories. You have the history of palm oil, which we probably won't have time to dive into. But if a person is interested in history of the food system, I think it's important that this is included here. Of course, I'm interested in health. I'm interested in the climate impacts right now. I was also interested in knowing more about your interview processes. Again, in your acknowledgments, you give thanks to the executives and others in the palm oil industry for explaining things. But at the same time, you also mentioned that your questions were not always welcome. Which questions were more likely to be pushed aside? You know, I didn't meet with that many executives in person. I did meet with a couple in Malaysia when I was in Kuala Lumpur, and I guess when I was in Jakarta. So a lot of that was by phone and by email afterward. And I guess they would sort of answer questions, but leaving things out or sort of answering them in PR speak in such a way that covered their asses. So it was more following up, you know, I would get documentation of different chemicals being used or different abuses or deforestation or land grabbing, often from reports from folks on the ground, different NGOs or government organizations. And then I would interview the people who worked on those reports and and check those facts and then go back to these companies to get their take on things. And so mostly there was sort of obfuscation or just, well, maybe that happened, but that was a long time ago and now everything's changed. We've totally cleaned up our act kind of thing. And I think it was when, was it somebody in India who had a health background who said to you, basically, I can talk to you about anything else but not palm oil? Yeah, that was amazing. Now, that was, it was in, I think I was in Jakarta, but it was at a big global conference on the EAT group. And so it was sort of about the climate and diet. And the health minister of Malaysia gave, I think, a keynote. Anyway, he, he gave like a, a talk in front of the whole group. And I was very interested in this because palm oil is one of Malaysia's main exports. And he talked about in, in his talk, like the, he said, it would have been nice if we had the ministers for the environment and the minister for agriculture here, because this is all part of these broken food system and climate system. And he didn't say anything about palm oil. And so I got in touch with his press person afterward and said that I wanted, you know, I was interested in, in his talk. At that point, I don't know if, I can't remember if I, I think I, if I knew that I was writing the book yet, but. Anyway, said I wanted to talk to him about various things. The guy said, okay, great. We exchanged a couple of emails. I was supposed to meet him down in the lobby to make a plan. I guess I did meet him down in the lobby, and he said, like, what do you want to talk about? And I mentioned a couple things, and I said palm oil. He said he can't talk about palm oil. He could talk about anything but that. 
which yeah. was just like the giant elephant in the room. Because if you're talking about diets and climate, how can you not talk about this crop that is basically in junk food and that you're chopping down the tropical rainforest in order to grow? So it was just it was such a um, crazy no notion. It was like this big open secret. Exactly. And I think that we see that in our own country too. You know, there are people who are doing research and they just do not feel like they have the freedom to speak about issues that are really at the crux of the problem. And later in the book, you talk about, you know, we really can't have a discussion about palm oil without talking about health, climate change, and COVID. And I think that with the awareness of this one health movement where we understand how we are all connected and when we burn out or destroy rainforests or any wild area, and we bring animals closer to where humans are living, that opens the door for all kinds of diseases. And you bring that to light in this book, and I'm really glad that you do. Thank you. Well, I love the fact that you look at everything in this holistic way, too. I know that your research and writing about farming is also health and environment and climate and all tied in together. Well, it's interesting that you had been at Gourmet, and I wonder about the readership, and maybe it's changing. I think people are more interested in the impact of food and agriculture on global health, but I also mm -hmm. find that many audiences don't want to hear such bad news. How do you navigate that? That's a hard one. I mean, we tried to do it at Gourmet. I think we did a good job because we got great writers and we had great recipes and beautiful photography and then also did these important political stories. But as your listeners might know, so Gourmet was owned by Condé Nast, which also owned Bon Appetit, and in 2008 or 2009 folded Gourmet and kept Bon Appetit. And Bon Appetit really didn't do any political stuff at all. So somebody made the decision that this doesn't really need to be in this food magazine. There's a new editor now at Bon App that, and they are starting to bring back a lot more political coverage and bringing in voices from different communities, which I think is great. But yeah, I was trying to, you know, in this book, I also, I didn't want it to be an academic tome. You know, I wanted it to appeal to a general readership. So, you know, I tried to have a character in every chapter. Ideally, I would have had sort of one character through whom I told the whole story. And there were times when I was writing it that I was thinking, you know, I just need to move to Indonesia or move to Malaysia and just stay in one community or keep going back over three years to show specifically how this is impacting this community. But then I felt like, but then there's all this history and, and I don't want readers in the States or in Europe to think, oh, this is only happening in Southeast Asia. Like I wanted to show that it's very close to us in Central America and South America and so there was just there was a lot of ground to cover, but sorry to, to loop back to your question. I tried to do reporting on the ground and find interesting characters through whom I could bring these maybe drier, more academic topics to life. So I tried to go back and forth between telling a story and slipping in statistics and things like that. Right. Well, speaking of statistics, we should probably talk about just how ubiquitous palm oil is in the diet. And I think that in one of your interviews, I think it was with Marion Nessel, the thinking is that most Americans, anyway, like to focus on themselves and uh -huh. the issue of personal health. So we'll start there, but we cannot address personal health as we are living and seeing today without looking at the whole planet. And because palm oil seems to be everywhere 
and its impact on the rainforests impact us wherever we are. That's why I think this book is so critical. Okay, so let's talk about palm oil and how it got into our food. If I understand from your book correctly, there was this big push against trans fat, which is found in hydrogenated vegetable oils. And we had to get that out of our diet because it was causing heart disease. And we did so fairly successfully, but it opened the door for other vegetable oils that had a high saturated fat component, and that would be palm oil. What's your understanding of how the amount of palm oil has just skyrocketed over the past decade or two? You mean specific to the States or globally? Globally. It's even bigger globally. Part of it is just the way the industry has grown since the turn of the century. So just to back up a tiny bit, the oil palm tree is native to Africa, and the industry was centered in Africa until the turn of the 20th century, and then planters started planting it in what was then Malaya and the Dutch East Indies, so now Indonesia and Malaysia. And then when those two countries got independence, they had big populations of very poor people, and it was largely, a, in both places, a poverty alleviation scheme. They had lots of land, lots of forested land, so they cleared rainforests and gave families parcels of land and uh, maybe some rubber plantings and some oil palm plantings as a sort of poverty alleviation scheme. And then the industry just grew and grew and grew from there, so there was a lot of palm oil, and they kept, they learned how to refine it and to fractionate it, divide it into sort of solid parts and liquid parts and then do various different processes on that so that it was it could be used in different kinds of foods, it could be used for frying, it could be used as a, a biofuel, it could be used in cosmetics and different industrial products. So they just found more and more uses for it. It's very versatile and so the palm oil fruit, there's this like orange flesh and then there's a kernel inside and you there's actually two oils that you get. You get palm oil from the flesh and palm kernel oil from the kernel. So there's just it's a very versatile, very productive crop. And so it's displaced everything else. We can also talk about how there was stolen land and very cheap labor involved, which made it even more lucrative for the the folks at the top of the industry. That sounds good. But let me just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Jocelyn Zuckerman. She is the author of really what I consider to be a must-read book for anyone who eats. It's titled Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World. I want to just interject a statistic because this really blew me away. Palm oil counts for one-third of total global vegetable oil consumption. And through our consumption, and I'm talking our in terms of every person on the planet, there's enough for 20 pounds per person per year. (laughs) It's a scary image. Isn't it? But what really scares me is even more than the hydrogenation part, you know, the fact that, yes, it's a saturated fat. What scares me is the destruction of the rainforest in order to produce this quantity of palm oil. And you've got a really striking image in your book of what it looks like to have the rainforest flattened. And it's a road that is going through the forest or what was once the forest Mm-hmm. And it looks like a graveyard. Mm-hmm. It looks like you could be on the moon. And when you think about what services rainforests provide us, they're considered to be the lungs of the planet, it makes me very frightened. Me too. 
totally. That's why I wrote the book. It was seeing that scene in Liberia when I went down there to, I wasn't even reporting on palm oil, to write a story about land grabs, and I got down there and saw that image. I was with the photographer when he took that shot. And we drove for miles and miles, and they had they had just raised everything to the ground. And it just made you sick to your stomach. It was just like the destruction truly was like nothing I'd ever seen. And it just went on and on. And then I started talking to the people there, and at least one woman, tears streaming down her face, she said, you know, I can't plant anything here. They took all our land. And people there in Liberia, people in Indonesia and other places said the same thing to me. The forest is our supermarket. And it's their Home Depot. It's their pharmacy. It's their everything. They got their building materials. They would get their proteins, you know, from hunting small animals. They get their fish, their clean water, the rattan for building their homes and furniture, their roots and berries, everything. And you chop that down and they, you know, I met so many people who were just angry and just like they had no hope left. They said, you know, everything is gone. Also their culture, you know, they had sort of crafts and the crafts that the women would hand down and the men who would take their sons out hunting. Sorry, those are very strict gender lines, but in many of these places that's how things still are. You know, there's no passing that down anymore because there's no forest. There's no place to to carry out those cultural traditions. Exactly. So it's heartbreaking on a lot of levels. Exactly. And so when people then cannot go to the rainforest for their medicine and their building supplies and their food then they become dependent on bottled water and Mm -hmm. junk and processed foods. Uh, Yeah, instant noodles and cigarettes. There's a lot of smoking. Yeah. I mean, it's just remarkable. And you also talk about this demise of one species. I'm looking specifically at page 115 because you talk about how people then become desperate. And so there is killing of these beautiful birds because it brings money. And, mm-hmm. of course, there's loss of land and livelihood. They're really trapped. But when you consider the demise of an individual species can lead to the collapse of entire ecosystems, that's huge. And I don't think that we consider that enough. Mm-hmm. I think we're starting to see that. I mean, with the just hearing more and more about the causes that might have brought COVID about, and also climate change. I think people are learning more about biodiversity and how important it is. And, you know, if you pull out one species, there are going to be these cascading effects of whether it's the species below it that ate or by whom it was consumed. And then those other species are going to have problems in their diets. And it's just going to, as I said, have these cascading effects throughout the ecosystem. Yeah. And when we go to the supermarket and we see these bright, shiny packages of products, It really takes a savvy consumer to want to look at the ingredient label and find palm oil listed. And I know that there are some labels that mention, you know, is it a sustainably produced palm oil? I actually, as soon as I finished reviewing your book, I went to my own cabinets. And I, like you, I don't eat a lot of processed food at all. But I did have a box of organic wheat crackers that I picked up when I was on a camping trip in Florida. Uh And I looked at the ingredient label, and sure enough, it said organic palm oil. Uh So is that organic palm oil, other than not using some of those horrible pesticides that are used in these palm-producing regions, is that really more sustainably produced? 
as far as I know, and there may be more, but I'm familiar with three different organic palm oil operations. Two of them are very small. One of them is this outfit I talk about in some of my interviews. I didn't mention it in the book in part because it's so small. It's called Natural Habitats, and they work with smallholder farmers in Ecuador. And, yes, that's sustainable. That's They intercrop it with passion fruit and other crops, and some of them use, like, compost tea and there's really good health care and education. So so that I think that stuff is great. Again, it's a very, very small supply. I know that Dr. Bronner's also works with smallholder farmers in Ghana to source organic palm oil for their soaps, and I believe that's a clean operation. There's also a big, I think it's Stabon, a big organic producer in Brazil. That one I'm less convinced by because it's plantation size. I mean, I didn't visit it. Apparently it is organic, but... What I've heard about it is the means by which the land was gotten was maybe not clean, that there might be some tie-ins with drug trade. Actually, forgive me, I can't remember if it's Brazil or Colombia. So I think it's organic, but it's on an industrial scale. So I imagine that there are issues probably still with land use and land grabbing and labor abuses is my guess. But as I said, I did not visit that one in person. Well, the book goes into, with great detail, the child labor, the slave market, union busting, pesticide exposure, the loss of the food system that people are culturally used to, and all of those are tragedies. But I think that in order for us to run with this information, you give us some really good ideas. I think we tend to feel, or at least I do, somewhat overwhelmed by just the enormity of the crises that we face today, but also sometimes alone and wondering what can I do? And does my individual purchase or action in a supermarket make a difference? And you've got some good organizations, some good NGOs that are working on these issues. You mentioned some legislation, I believe, in another interview, but there's the the Rainforest Action Network, Friends of the Earth, Amnesty International, What would you want our listeners to know about how to correct this terrible problem? I think, as you said, get involved with some of those organizations, at least go to their websites. And I think at this point, what we need is more government action, because the industry, there is this organization, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, which was formed in 2004, I believe. It's been largely a greenwashing organization. I mean, the industry is is not going to clean up its act unless we demand that it does. So my intent with the book was to tell people what's involved in the production of this commodity and inspire them, I hope, to learn more about it and to speak out. You could speak out to these companies uh, through their websites. Anyway, what's great about these organizations is that they organize campaigns to, to really come down hard on various companies. And as I said, and you mentioned, there is some legislation in the works and there's some organizations coming together focused on the confluence of biodiversity issues and climate change and their links to deforestation. And the idea is to fund the governments of these countries that have these tropical rainforests to help them to keep those trees in the ground. Now, a lot of these countries are poor, many of them, most of them in the global south, and we need to understand that people need to eat and they need to make money somehow, and if there's a rainforest there, they're going to poach animals or knock down trees if they need a source of fuel. So it needs to be like a much higher government-level action, and we need to help fund those governments to put in place 
you know, we need to recognize indigenous land rights because in so many of these areas, it's indigenous people that are just being pushed off the land because they don't have the paperwork to prove that they're right to it. And there's so much corruption, so better enforcement of the law and better sort of regulation of forest exploitation. And again, I, I think it, it needs to be a global effort because we need to send money from rich countries to these poorer countries that happen to be home to these tropical rainforests, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you make that point really well in the book. In fact, you describe some examples. I think Norway provided some economic incentives. Is that correct? That is correct. And there's an um, initiative called Red Plus. I should know what it stands for. It's like reforesting, avoiding deforestation. Anyway, it's it's been around for, I think, like 20 years. It's a UN thing. And, and the idea was to fund these governments to reforest and avoid deforestation. But it just hasn't, there's been a lot of loopholes and it hasn't had a lot of teeth in it. And now this recent initiative that was announced a couple months ago involves governments and a lot of industry too. Amazon, Unilever, I forget which others, but a bunch of companies also recognizing we need to put our money where our mouth is. And it started with a billion dollars in um, public finance available every year to, to fund these governments to make sure the forests standing. Absolutely. And our lives and our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives truly depend on this. And I think that in the United States, at least we have labels that tell us if palm oil is present. But Mm -hmm. you also describe in the book how the same product, say fast food from maybe it's McDonald's or Yum! Brands, maybe the oil used in the United States might be a little different than that which is used in other parts of the world. So if we have the power to see what's in our food, we should use that. And I personally, based on this book, I am just a little bit like I want to just shake everyone and say, did you look at the ingredient label on that before you put that in your mouth or before you make that purchase? Mm. Yeah. And as you said, I think it's, um, we do need to think, I hope, I know Americans tend to be I don't know, a little self-centered, and we think, and look at the ingredient label because is is this going to be you know healthy for my body, make me fat, whatever. But I think if people start thinking, you know, what is the impact on workers on the other side of the world? What is the impact on on the environment? I mean, now we're seeing with all these fires and and flooding and everything, it's like climate change is here. We need to really start shouting and doing something about it. I agree. We just have a minute, and so I need you to just leave us with. One last message. I know our time flew. Uh, it sure did. One last message. I guess that, that, you know, we've got the power. We educate ourselves, and then we start speaking out. And, you know, I am hopeful that, I don't know if you saw in the New York Times, there's an essay by Greta Thunberg and, and I think four other activists from the Philippines and Kenya and someplace else. These young people sort of standing up and saying, this is our future, and we are, you know, we're not going to stand for this. We need we need these changes. I'm starting to cry. It gets me so upset. And I'm so inspired by that young woman. But, um, you know, I just think time is running out. Like, we are, we are at the edge of the apocalypse. And it's not all about palm oil, but it is largely about tropical rainforests. And so I just hope, I would hope that people um, start speaking out about it. That's why I so wanted you to be on as my guest and why I wanted to promote this book. 
Planet Palm, How Palm Oil Ended Up in Everything and Endangered the World by Jocelyn Zuckerman, who has been our guest today. Unfortunately, we have to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, again, thanks to Jocelyn Zuckerman for this powerful look. Talk about pulling back the curtain on something that is ubiquitous, a hidden ingredient in our not only our food, but also in our cosmetics and personal products like shampoos, cream rinses, and soaps. If there's one book to bring to your book club, it would be this, Planet Palm. Thank you so much, Jocelyn. Thanks so much, Melinda. I've really enjoyed this.